Okay, I know. We have been on the home stretch of getting through Romans for quite some time. <laughs> but we've only got two episodes left. And this is one of those two. So let's get rolling on finishing up Romans 16. And I really do hope that this study through Romans has been helpful to y'all. I hope that you've learned something or that maybe you've heard a different perspective than what you originally have heard. I mean, I know for me, it has been so insightful. I have learned so many things and I have changed my opinion and my mind on certain things that I thought were set in stone. And so, hey, that seems like a win. Um, I do want to point out as well that there are some things that were covered throughout Romans um, and we weren't able to cover all the things that can be covered or discovered or known in Romans. Like all of the Bible, there is a lifetime of knowledge to be gained from this letter to the Romans. And the more that you grow in your biblical knowledge, the more you study, the more you read your Old Testament, the more that you read your New Testament, you'll start to see parallels and you'll start to see hyperlinks and themes that Paul is using in this letter to the Roman people. And so this this wasn't a, a fully comprehensive, exhaustive study. I mean, I, I tried my best for it to be, but trust me, there is so much more that can be discovered and learned uh, just in this one letter that we're reading that I just couldn't possibly cover and no single human being can possibly cover. So keep on studying, keep on reading, keep on learning. Uh, there is a world of things to be discovered. And I just want to give you a heads up that these next two episodes, well, this one might be a little bit long. <laughs> the next episode won't be too long. Um, I could cover the second episode in this episode, but it would make this episode very, very long because there's a lot of things to hop into here in just three verses. But hey, what's new? This, this is what we do on this podcast. We're going to hop straight into it. Romans 16, we're going through verses 17 through 20. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All right, like we always do, we're going to break this down verse by verse. Verse 17 again. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So Paul is keying in on a very common problem that early Christians and all Christians for all time have run into, and that is namely false teachers. And it's crazy because in today's world, we see people use and abuse God's word in all ways, shapes, and form in order for their own personal gain, whether they're trying to gain power, control, fame, money. They will wield God's word like a sword to chop you down in order to build themselves up. And if you don't think that 
this is a problem for the people in the early church times, if you think that this is just a problem that modern people are having to face, uh, here's a few warnings that the biblical authors give us. I'm just going to name a few. There is many, many more. But these should give us a good idea of what's going on like 2,000 years ago at the very beginning of Christianity. Jesus gives us a warning. Matthew 24, verse 23 through 24, he says this, If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or yo, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So here, this one is particularly interesting because Jesus makes the claim that there will be people claiming to be Jesus or claiming to see Jesus or Christ, the Messiah, in their time. And you might think, I mean, we don't really see people today claiming that they're Christ, that they're the Messiah. I mean, look at all the cults. You can Google all the cults throughout history. And it's astonishing to see how many have claimed that their leader is Jesus, that their leader is Christ, or they've claimed to have his power, or they've claimed to receive some uh, some revelation, or they claim to be taken up into heaven to meet him, and now they're preaching all these things contrary to the Bible. In, in the goal of these false Christs and these false prophets is to lead God's people astray. It's to build themselves up for either power, control, fame, or money. Here's another example. Paul is speaking to Timothy in his letter, his first letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, look, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So, at least in this context, from what Paul is saying, uh, it's clear that Paul is trying to put out some fires that are happening in Ephesus. Because as he tells Timothy, he says, hey, there are people who are teaching false doctrines regarding myths and endless genealogies. And he continues on in, in verse 5. I'll repeat it. He says, the goal of our instruction is love. That's the goal. He, they have a goal of instruction, or you could say Torah, a, a goal of Torah, because Torah is the Hebrew word for instruction. But what's interesting is that in verse 7, Paul informs Timothy that these people they want to be teachers of the law or the Torah, but they're not. And this is actually kind of interesting. Just a cool little side note. Dr. Tim Mackey says this regarding this passage. He says, myths, genealogies, speculations, and linking this to the Torah. He says, what part of Genesis do I find odd stories that are easy to misunderstand, long genealogies that could be misinterpreted and misapplied in a lot of different ways. Paul's telling you from the beginning 
that this is a whole set of controversies about bad interpretations of the early chapters of Genesis. And so this is just kind of interesting that Timothy, just 40-ish years removed from Jesus in, in, in the gospel starting to be preached, that Timothy is having to deal with people who are already completely misunderstanding the early books of the Bible, and they're, they're teaching really wrong and incorrect doctrine because of this. And look, at the end of 1 Timothy, this is the result of this incorrect teaching. He says this in verse 18. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So, I mean, Paul just says it straight out right here that there are people whose faith has been shipwrecked. They have complete, their faith has completely fallen apart because of the false and incorrect teachings of the people who just completely misunderstood or were misusing and abusing Genesis in the early chapters. These are inevitably the results that will follow when we have false teachers running around spreading incorrect doctrine. And this type of misunderstanding that can easily, as Paul puts, shipwreck our faith, unfortunately, this is easy to fall into. Especially if you were never taught how to properly read your Bible or you were never taught how important it is for you to read your Bible and also to check your pastors and your teachers on what they are saying the Bible says. I mean, this is exactly why Paul is telling the Roman people to check these teachers in, the, in these false prophets and all these other people. This is why Paul's telling them to check what they're saying against the correct doctrine that Paul has given them. And what Paul has given them is a part of Scripture, and Paul expects them to compare the things that they are hearing from all these teachers, whether they are good-intentioned or not. He expects them to check and compare what they are hearing with the things that Paul has correctly taught them and the things that they already have access to within their Old Testament scrolls. And if they don't match up, well, then there's a problem. And for us today, we, we have an ability, we have a, we have a power that early Christians did not have. And that's the power of having the Word of God at our fingertips. I mean, I access the Bible on my phone and on my laptop. I have a physical Bible, but I haven't touched it in like six years because <laughs> I, I, I have access to thousands of translations, concordances, lexicons, uh, Greek and Hebrew word study. I have access to all of that on our fingertips. We all do. And, and one silly thing that I do with this, which I'm sure drives my wife crazy, is that every sermon that I hear or every book that I read, every theological or scholarly book that I read, I always double-check what they're saying. Every little thing that they say, I double-check it 
and I, I will look it up for myself. I'll look up the verse myself. If they say that a word means something, I'll look up that word in a concordance and try and see where they're getting this from. If they say that um, Genesis one means this, then I go and check what Genesis. I go and check with Genesis one, and I always double check what a pastor in a sermon tells me or a scholar tries to tell me, or if I'm reading a theological book, I always double check what they're saying with what the Bible says. And here's why. I had an incident um, when I was really starting to to question my faith. I think some people use the term deconstructing. I don't know if I necessarily like that term because deconstructing for some people means that they just completely broke their faith and they no longer believe. That's not what I was doing. I was I was basically questioning and comparing all the things that I had been taught because I'd only went to one church for my whole life. So I was comparing all these things that I taught with what educated scholars were teaching, what other God-fearing pastors were teaching, and what the Bible was actually saying. And there was one incident that caused me to do this, is that I was in a small group about three years ago before I really started this journey. And we were talking about a previous sermon that the pastor gave. And the pastor gave a sermon about tithing, about why it's so important and why it is a biblical command that we have to tithe 10% of the first fruits of our income and we have to tithe it to the church. And when we do this, God will bless us. And this means that we're trusting God with our money. So we were talking about this in our small group, the importance of tithing. And unbeknownst to me, our pastor had pulled a ton of scripture out of context and was misusing it or misunderstanding it to prove his point that it was a biblical command for Christians to tithe 10%. And there was a couple that raised the question. They said, I don't think that the Bible actually commands New Testament believers to tithe 10%. And me and my wife were like, what what are they saying? And the other couples in the small group were looking at these people like they were heretical. It was absolutely crazy. And I, I my first response was to be defensive. But lo and behold, as I studied this and looked this up, I found out that they were right. And that the passages that my pastor was using to support this teaching were completely ripped out of context. And we're being misused. And once I found one instance of my pastor misusing scripture, it caused me to want to double check everything that I had been told with what the Bible actually said in the context that it was supposed to be in. And this revelation that I had is one reason why I've told y'all in the past on the podcast to not take my word as gospel truth, to not just take what I say and go, Wow, I now believe that. I now think that this passage means that because I'm a human being and I could be very wrong about many subjects because I'm a human being. And that's the same way for any other pastor or scholar or teacher that you hear. Their word is not infallible. The Bible is, but they can give you amazing insight to what the Bible 
is trying to say and what it means and how it should be applied. But you always should double check what I say or what anyone else says about Scripture with Scripture. And Paul would agree with this. And you can tell that Paul would agree with this. One, because he told them to double check what these false teachers are saying with the doctrine that he's given them. But also, multiple times in this letter, Paul bases his teaching and backs up his teaching with Scripture. Scripture that he knows that the Jewish listeners would know very, very well. Multiple times, Paul brings up Old Testament precedents and says, hey, uh, for instance, Israel being able to be cut out from the promise. He says, hey, y'all remember how uh, God has cut y'all off once. And he can do it again if you're not going to follow Christ. Just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham does not mean that God cannot cut you off and he backs up what he's saying with Scripture. So this is a principle that we need to apply any time we are listening to someone teach or preach the Bible. That Scripture is the basis that we judge all other teachers on. Because as Paul points out, especially what's happening for the Roman church at this time, these quote-unquote teachers and preachers, they will come to divide and place obstacles in the way of God's people. And, and furthermore, look at verse 18. He says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So there are people who purposely divide and skew the gospel for their own self-benefit, or as Paul puts it, their own appetite. They take what is supposed to fill you up to fill themselves up. And they do this with smooth talk. They, they sound good when they speak either by the words that they use, or maybe they have some catchy phrases, or maybe they sound really motivational, and they can get you pumped, or maybe they have really good charisma. Or maybe they also say things that flatter you, that make you feel good about yourself. A lot of this, I find parallels with the modern-day prosperity and manifestation gospel and preaching that unfortunately is invading so much of Christianity. When you listen to these guys, they speak in ways that make you feel good. They motivate you. They get loud and exciting. They will flatter you by speaking to your own desires, by saying that you deserve all the money, you deserve all the fame, you deserve all the health, you deserve to be loved, you deserve to be forgiven, but they never talk about how God deserves our praise and our sacrifice. God deserves for us to put down our own desires and our own wants in order to follow him. They, they, they never want to speak in ways that don't flatter you because when they can flatter you, they can get you to buy into it. And this tactic isn't anything new. Paul warns about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Look at this. He says, hey, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, 
They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. If that does not summarize the prosperity and manifestation, name it and claim it, gospel that is so pervasive today, I don't know what else is. You have so many people who believe that Christianity is about what God can do for me instead of about what we can do for God. And when we think that God is just our magical genie, that if we pray enough and have faith enough that we can get whatever we want, then we'll, we'll gladly accumulate a ton of teachers and a ton of preachers who will tell us over and over again that our sin, we don't have to repent. We, we'll just sing about Jesus and everything will be okay that, oh, if I just believe hard enough, then God will just bless me with all the money I could ever want. This is the byproduct of people who are no longer listening, as Paul says, to sound teaching because they would rather have God conform to their desires instead of their desires conforming to God. And this means that we have a choice. We have a choice to either follow the truth and follow Jesus or follow our desires. You can't do both. Because if you follow the truth, it means that you sacrifice your desires. But if you follow your desires, it means that you sacrifice the truth and you don't follow Jesus. You, you can't have the best of both worlds because both of those worlds do not coincide. And th this is not me saying that God does not want to bless you with good things. This is not me saying that God does not want to heal you or that God doesn't want to see you uh, be well sustained financially. But what this, but what I am saying is that you cannot serve two lords. You have to choose one. Now, these warnings that Paul is giving of people who are trying to deceive and place obstacles and all of this, this builds an archetype. It's like a, it's like a persona, in a sense, of, of a person or a character that we actually find very early in the Bible. So Okay, so think about it. Think about this with me. Paul is building an archetype of someone who wants to create division, who wants to create obstacles that go against God's commands. Someone who achieves this by smooth, deceptive talk that appeals to the desires of mankind. And someone who also targets the naive. Can I think of anywhere in Scripture that we find a character that fits this bill? How about the snake in Genesis 3? Let's look at it. Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, man. Okay. 
there's so many things to talk about. I have to control myself on this one because we'll be doing a deep dive into this when we hop into the first few chapters of Genesis in a few weeks. So I'm, I'm going to try and give us a surface level and, and keep on topic. Uh, but there's a few things that we can see that Paul is clearly keying in on. So let's, let's look at the snake, the serpent, the snake. It, we're told that the snake is crafty, or in other translations, the snake is shrewd. And it's clear from the narrative that the snake wants to create division and place obstacles in the way for mankind to fulfill their purpose and also to fulfill the command to only eat from the tree of life. And he, he does so in such a deceptive way. If we look at what the snake says, he, he's playing dumb. He says, did God actually say you, you can't eat from any tree of the garden? He's being deceptive. And the woman who he targets is naive. She's naive and she tries to attempt to correct the snake. And we can tell that she's naive to the exactness of what God commanded because she misquotes what God said in Genesis 2. What she does is she adds some things to God's command. She adds the fact that neither shall you touch it lest you die. God didn't say that you would die if you touched it. And so clearly Eve is naive to the fact of what God really said. And the, the snake is being deceptive in attacking someone who's naive. But look, lastly, the snake appeals to the human's desire. He flatters them and says, hey, God knows that when you do this, you'll be just like him. Oh, also, hey, you, you, you won't die. No, no, no. God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. So do you, do you see the building of an archetype that Paul is creating for someone who wants to create division and obstacles that go against God's commands, someone who achieves this by smooth, deceptive talk that appeals to the desires of mankind and someone who targets the naive? This is the exact qualities and tactics that the snake did to cause mankind to fall. So it seems like what Paul is doing here is he is making the connection between the snake in Genesis 3 and the people who act exactly like the snake. He, he's making a connection between them. And to support this point even further, look at what Paul says next. This is even further connection between the snake and the people who act like them. Verse 19, he says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Okay, here's the connection. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet feet. So let's break down a few things here. So typically, this is understood to be talking about Satan or the devil, right? The individual, evil spiritual being, God's nemesis that wreaks havoc on heaven and earth. He is just a, a complete, terrible, individual, evil spirit. But I don't think that's entirely what Paul is talking about here. We need to understand that there are two ways that the word Satan can be used. 
And the Bible uses it in two different ways. So you have the popular understanding of Satan, or in Hebrew, Satan, being the name of one evil spiritual being, God's nemesis. We just talked about that. But you also have the second use of Satan being a title for a type of person or a spiritual being. Now, when I learned about this, completely blew my mind. So, Satan in Hebrew and in Greek literally means the adversary. It's not necessary that Satan be a personal pronoun for this evil spiritual being. It's used multiple times as just calling someone an adversary. Here's a few examples. 1 Samuel chapter 29, verse 4. You can read this with me and look in a uh, concordance or a lexicon and see that I'm not lying to you. <laughs> it says, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. So like I said, uh, Satan in Hebrew means adversary. And what we get translated here when it says he will become an adversary to us is the Hebrew word Satan. So if we were reading this in Hebrew, it would literally read, lest in the battle he become a Satan to us. Or if we say it as we do in English, lest in the battle he will become a Satan to us. So here's an instance where a human being is being referred to as a Satan. Here's another instance. 1 Kings 11 verse 23. God also raised up as an adversary to him, Rezan, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. So, if we were reading this literally, it would say, God also raised up as a Satan to him, Rezan, the son of Eliada. So, another example where a human being is being called Satan. So, with this in mind, we see that the word Satan or Satan does not always translate to an individual evil being, God's nemesis, uh, that is the cause of all evil on earth. It is used many times to refer to humans and spiritual beings alike that are adversaries, and it's used almost like a title. Now, we've reached a point in this episode where the rest of this episode is going to get kind of technical. It may be confusing. I'm going to do my very best <laughs> to um, break this down and explain it. I'm not a Hebrew or Greek scholar, but the information that I'm going to be sharing is from Hebrew and Greek scholars. Uh, but this is just not stuff that is readily available or commonly talked about. But I think it's super interesting and super useful for helping us understand the Bible a little bit better. So let's hop into it. Um, so looking back at Romans 16, our English translations for verse 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan or Satan under your feet. However, when we look at this in the Greek, if you have an interlinear, if you go to biblehub.com, pull up Romans 16, verse 20, you can see this in the interlinear. There is a definitive article, which is the Greek uh, ho, 
and it's in front of the Greek word for Satan. And our English translations don't add this definitive article, and I think there's a reason why. But if we read this, it if we read this literally from the Greek, verse 20 should read, The God of peace will soon crush the Satan, or the adversary, under your feet. And why is this relevant? Well, this is relevant because the Greek word for Satan derives directly from the Hebrew Satan, and the grammar behind its use is important. A Hebrew scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser, says this in his blog uh, regarding the use of the, the Satan or the Satan in Job. One quick little tidbit. I don't have this in my notes, so sorry if this goes a little bit longer. But one quick little tidbit. In Job, in the first, I believe, three chapters, we hear about, in our English translations, it says Satan, right? Satan came up to God and said, hey, God, I, I've been traveling to and fro across the earth. And um, hey, here's this dude, Job. Are you sure that if you took everything from him, that he wouldn't just up and denounce you, Lord? Are you sure about that? And we've always understood this to be talking about like the one evil entity that is God's arch nemesis, that Satan just travels around and is like, hey, God, let me test these people. But in the Hebrew, uh, and if you if you go to like ESV or NASB, the, they should have footnotes next to the word Satan where it'll just say the adversary. And that's how we're supposed to understand it. And in Hebrew, in front of Satan, it has the Hebrew word for the, referring to seemingly a title, the adversary for a spiritual being. And so Michael Heiser holds the, the view that uh, Satan in the first few chapters of Job is not necessarily the one evil spiritual arch nemesis in the Bible, Satan. But he holds the view that the Satan is just a title for an adversary, someone, a spiritual being that goes all across the earth to um, accuse those who are doing wrong and, and bring them forth for judgment. It's actually really interesting and I'm not doing it justice, so you can go check it out on Dr. Michael Heiser's blog. If you just Google his name, you'll find it. But anyway, I'm going to read you an excerpt about how the, the biblical Hebrew is used um, in regard to talking about Satan in Job, because I think it has some implications for how we understand what Paul is saying here in Romans 16. So, quote, in biblical Hebrew, the definite article, the word the, is a single letter, ha. Hebrew prefixes attaches the definite article to a noun or a participle to make it a substantive so that, like all languages, they have a definite article. The noun is made specific. Biblical Hebrew does not, however, put the definite article, the word the, on proper personal nouns, personal names. In this respect, Hebrew is like English. So basically what he's getting at here is that Hebrew doesn't put the word the in front of a proper personal noun or a personal name. Uh, same like how we do in English. So in English, for instance, um, I would call myself Dante. And if somebody else referred to me, they would say Dante. They would not refer to me as the Dante. That's not proper grammar. And it sounds really weird. However, you could place the word the, that definite article, in front of a 
title. So I am a father. So instead of calling me just father, you could say Dante is the father. And that would make sense, grammatical sense as well. And we actually see this happen in the Hebrew, uh, in Genesis 2. This happens quite a bit, and we may point this out when we go through our Genesis study. But in Genesis 2, a few things that we can um, point out is that Adam and Eve, Adam's name, Adam, literally just means human or mankind. So you have Adam, which is being used as a proper personal name for Adam, Adam. But Adam also means human. And so there's multiple times in Genesis 2 when the author is talking about just the human and not talking about the personal proper name Adam for Adam and Eve. It's really weird and complex, but let me try and explain it to you. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 through 8, it says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. So every time that we read the word the man in Genesis 2, in Hebrew, uh, the word the is ha, and then man is adam. So in Hebrew, it's saying, then the Lord God formed ha adam, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Ha-Adam became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put Ha-Adam, who he had formed. So here the Hebrew is putting the word the in front of Adam. And it's not using Adam as the personal proper noun to talk about a name, but it's using Adam as a, a title or a designation of the thing it's talking about, which would just be a man. So I hope that's not too confusing. The, the main point I'm trying to make is, is that in Hebrew and also in English, we don't put the word the in front of a proper personal noun or personal name because grammatically it's incorrect. But we will put the word the in front of a title and what this leads to is an understanding of Romans 16, verse 20, that has Paul not necessarily talking about Satan, the God's eternal rival, but also, in the same sense, it could be Paul talking about people who are being the Satan. Because in the Greek, it says, God will crush the Satan under your feet. Which makes perfect sense because Paul just got done telling them to watch out for adversaries that want to divide and lead God's people astray. Now, to make clear, in one sense, I do think Paul is talking about God's arch enemy, Satan, as we commonly know him. But, but the grammar and the way that Paul points out other people other than Satan that are trying to divide and act in this Satan snake-like way, I really do think that, that Paul is talking more generally about adversaries, people who act like Satan. And these are those that God's going to crush under their feet. Okay, so we also need to understand 
why Paul invokes the snake's curse in Genesis 3, because this will also lend to the understanding of Paul talking about the adversaries and the Satan more generally than just one evil spiritual being. Okay, so let's look at Genesis 3, because Paul quotes from Genesis 3 here in verse 15. This is just after Adam and Eve fell, God is cursing the snake, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So our English translations, and I'm reading from the ESV, they do a pretty solid job here uh, because they render it between your offspring and her offspring is where that hostility will be. Uh, But some older translations may say between your seed and her seed. And, And technically, this is correct. But the problem with this translation is that the Hebrew word for seed doesn't differentiate between the singular and the plural use of seed. So you can have one seed or you can have many seed, and the Hebrew doesn't differentiate between that. So offspring here is a better translation because offspring can mean many offspring or it can mean one offspring. But in this case, uh, it is talking about a plurality of offspring. And what this means is that the hostility that God says is going between that God says is going to be between the snake's plural seed and the woman's plural seed would be referring to a larger group of offspring. And to be clear, offspring doesn't necessarily entail biological descendants. Cain, for instance, was biologically the seed of the woman. But his actions made it as if he was the seed of the snake. And if this sounds weird, uh, biblical authors, and even Jesus himself, uh, key in on this being a very real possibility. Look what Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus himself is is viewing the Pharisees as not biologically, but spiritually being the descendant of the snake, being the seed of the snake. He calls the devil their father. And he says that they will do their father's desire. And Paul makes a similar argument in Romans that to be the offspring of Abraham doesn't mean that you're biologically descended from Abraham, but that you have the same faith like Abraham. And we, we see this whole theme of being able to be the descendant or the seed of the snake or the woman um, in a more spiritual sense, throughout the entire Bible. We see groups of people who act in ways that resemble the snake, deceiving, destroying, usurping authority to get what they want. One example that we've talked about before is is Jacob. Jacob's name literally is heel grabber because when they're coming out of the womb, he grabs at Esau's heel. And that Hebrew word for heel 
the only other time it was used up to that point was in God's curse to the snake, saying that the snake will strike the heel of the woman's offspring. It's a clear connection in Jacob for a lot of his life acts like the snake. He deceives his father. He stabs his brother in the back. It, he is acting like the offspring of the snake. But you also have portraits of the woman's offspring. People who work to go against deception and evil and people who choose to follow God. And I know, I know that there's people listening right now that's like, Dante, this in Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy about Jesus. And I would say, yes, a portion of it is about Jesus. Namely the part where it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And there's a difference that we need to point out between the first half of this curse and the second half, because you have the hostility being between the snake's plural offspring and the woman's plural offspring. But then in the very next verses, it singles out a singular offspring from the snake and from the woman, because it goes in and says that out of this plurality of offspring, he shall bruise your head. And you, singular, shall bruise his, singular, heel. So you have this plural offspring from the snake and the woman that will constantly be going at each other, that will constantly be clashing heads. And we can see this throughout the entire biblical narrative and throughout our very own lives. But you will have one of the woman's offspring, Jesus, that will come forward to bruise the one head of the snake, which we would believe is Satan, God's arch enemy. So going back to Romans 16, verse 20, I'll read it again. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So hopefully with everything that we've talked about, I hope it wasn't too confusing. We, we can get a better understanding of what Paul's saying. So it seems like Paul is saying the God of peace will soon crush the Satan, the adversary, whether that be God's arch enemy Satan or his offspring or both, that he will crush the Satan under your, plural, that's plural, under your feet. He's talking about the church's feet, the body of Christ. The God of peace will soon crush the adversary, whether that be Satan himself or all of his offspring, under the church's feet. And this is Paul claiming that God will finally bring an end to this everlasting battle between the snake and his offspring, those who do evil, and the woman's offspring, those who follow God. And it's all because one of the woman's offspring, Jesus, struck the head, the leader of the snake, Satan himself, with a fatal blow. And all of this is coming full circle for Paul. And it's being ended and ultimately reversed through Christ. And this is what we have to look forward to. The day when the snake's offspring, the adversaries, no longer wage war against God's people, the seed of the woman. And the way that Paul wants to equip the Roman church to fight against this is by having them be on high alert for those who try and deceive and distract away from the truth of the gospel. And it seems very clear 
that these people are being connected to the snake and his offspring. Because just like these people who are trying to deceive and distract away from the truth of the gospel, so did the snake in the Garden of Eden. I'll see y'all next week.